Welcome back to the podcast. My guest is Colin Green, head of product security at Facebook. Uh, life or in cybersecurity, I would say. Colin, what does a head of product security at Facebook do? Like, can you set the scene of what, what's your role there at Facebook? Yeah, um, broadly, we we find, fix, and build structures to prevent risks. That could mean a security vulnerability. It could mean sort of an architecture or design flaw early, more in the idea stage. Um, there's a response function when we screw something up and a bug makes it out the door and we need to fix it. But g- generally, I don't do anything cool these days. I'm My problem domain is people. I, I help sort of build and tend to the team that does the actual cool stuff. All right. I want to get into the whole people and people versus tools and, and skills shortage and all of that. We'll get into that a little bit. But one of the things I think is fascinating about your career and something that not many people discuss is like taking an L. Taking a loss and getting, because because you've written about, you know, product security primitives and how you view the product security cycle. And at the end of it, you always say, there's always mistakes, not necessarily mistakes will be made, but you'll take an L. It doesn't matter how modern your security program is or how amazing your people are, you'll take an L. And you've been in an organization that have taken at least two L's that I know about, or at least three L's that I know about. Can you take a, a step back and... Kind of describe what is that when when you when you think about a security program mm-hmm. and you start to figure out what the what it would look like and what the priorities are. How does taking an L fit into it there and help people understand like the reality of what a good modern security program looks like? Yeah, I like that. You're, what was you're your on... worst L, by the way? Oh boy. Okay, I'll leave that for a second. I'll go for the meta point first. Like we're not perfect. We're human beings, right? Whether we're building a bridge or a widget or a desk or something insanely complex like software out of hundreds of million lines of code and other people's components, like perfection is not it's it's the target, but it's not something that anyone is going to be able to achieve. Like the challenger blew up, right? Even when we try so hard, we're not going to hit perfection. So you're always going to take an L your organization and or the software you're protecting or whatever you're doing, maybe you won't get hacked, but there's things that are lingering out in your code base right now or things you're doing wrong. And that's true of all of us. So the sooner we can accept that, the smarter we can be about where we allocate our time and energy to sort of give a balanced uh, risk appropriate, for lack of a better word, response to that. So to get a little bit more concrete, that means that like we can't sit in ivory towers and build perfect software that's formally verified for everything. We also, we really just want to stack up the different layers of defense. So this is SDLC or, you know, sandboxing, any of these other things. I think about it as there is a hypothetical security vulnerability out there in my code right now. There's a bunch of them and I don't know about them. I have to spend a lot of effort to go find them. So I want to stack up as many things that will help me find as many of them before anyone else and just handle them as well as possible to try and Make it so that bug doesn't turn into a breach, for lack of a better phrase. Like all of them have the probability of turning into a breach because they're just sitting there in my code base, but they don't all have to. And even when they do turn into a breach, I have some agency over how I respond and what we do. And to kind of get to the third point of, of what you're saying there, it's like those things are wonderful lessons. Like every bug bounty thing that comes through is by definition something that every one of the little layers and check marks that we have set up missed. So it teaches us a lesson that we can feed back in and build some more tools or protections or something. I'm glad you bring up SDL because I, I mentioned earlier you're a lifer in this industry. SDL, uh, our 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 exposure to SDL came from uh, you know Dr. Steve Lipner and Michael Howard and those guys like describing and documenting that model for a previous era, a Microsoft security era, and you were involved in that. Can we can we just kind of go all the way back in time? Yeah, you're a Seattle guy. Yeah. Which, which, which kind of puts you in a really interesting place and time to land where you are in your career here in security. Can you go all the way back and, and, and help folks understand your path in? Sure. Because I think that's going to guide a lot of the conversations we want to have around product security and how SDL fits and how everything becomes shift left in this new environment. And I want to I yeah. take a historical walk back down those lanes with you. Because I feel like we can talk about the Vista Pen test, your work at Leviathan, and all that stuff over the years that that that's placed you at the perch to have this kind of visibility to see how you know our industry have evolved over the years. So yeah, how did you get into this madness? Yeah, madness. How did we both get into this thing? Um, so I I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, is where I start with 
not as middle of nowhere as you, as we were talking about. So <laughs> I need to stop saying that now. About two and a half hours outside of Seattle in a little town where no one was really interested in security or computers. And that was fine. And um, I was one of those kids that loved building stuff, building forts, Legos, whatever, just building and breaking was always kind of my thing. And um, I think there was an important turning point. I, I was probably 15 or so. And um, I would get my parents actually to drop me off at 2,600 meetings that were in the big city of Seattle, about two and a half hours away. Well, how did you even hear about that as a high school 15 year old? That's you a good question. You were just question. kind of dabbling around that world of tinkering and messing around and poking around computers. Yeah. Like the internet was this big wide world and we had dial up, but it was slow. So I think I was always enchanted by this notion of, you know, trying to be a hacker or learn something about it. I, I don't, I can't pinpoint when that happened, but I remember thinking as a, going into middle school, I was like, yeah, this is, I want to know what this is about. Were you um, always the math guy? Like the, the natural math whiz? No, I, I, I really respect people. It, it, I think the way of thinking lends itself to that a lot. And one of the good buddies that I grew up with up here turned out to grow up and be a math professor and he's still involved in security and hacking stuff too. So it definitely works, but I wasn't a math guy. I was just a, maybe a builder guy. It's the way I would think about it. I like building right, things. Right. One of those makers, tinker types. So you would get down to Seattle. Your parents would get you down to Seattle for 2,600 meetings. Who were some of the folks who were around at the time? Any big names that we would recognize? Yeah, I, I completely lucked out with just this wonderful group of mentors um, and people that I look up to then and still do today. So um, DD Michael Eddington, who works on Peach Fuzzer, he was there. Um, Riley Eller, who, you know, I guess if you say a leader of the ghetto hackers, like he was at the center of all that. Um, Jeremy Brustel, who started this company called Coco Communications, which was the first official computer job I got. Um, loved that job. He wrote, uh, I think it was Air Snort back in the day for the web cracking stuff. It was the first one of those. Um, my friend Chung, my friend Broker. So like, that was the crew. That was the, the 2600 crew in Seattle at the time. Yeah. And I completely lucked into it. And I would go back to my little town and I would ignore anything that was going on. And I would just be on IRC and I'd say like, Hey, what should I learn about? And, you know, Oh, uh, my, my friend and mentor, Frank Height also, he would give me drives back sometimes because he lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And so they would say, figure out what um, this sort of encryption is and build a little cipher thing or like, Hey, here's some exploits for something crummy. And to keep script kitties like you out of it, you know, they broke it. So like fix it or like, you know, write tic-tac-toe and see and these things. So that, very encouraging. And I would pester them with questions. And one summer I wrote a really shitty operating system, like got the bootloader and everything going. And once it got hard, I got right out of there. But like all these things were just wonderful. Like you could just go do it. There was no gatekeepers. A, a lot of like dirtying your hands on actual code. And, and like you mentioned, you had actual mentors who could actually guide you and, and push you. And this is what I liked about like the old 2600 club kind of maker house feel atmosphere. And we, we used to have this in New York. I would go down to New York City to hang out with those guys. Not because yeah. I was any interested in any sort like of programming, but I was just fascinated by that world of um, just generosity of information yeah. sharing it. And it doesn't seem like it exists as much today. I mean, we're in a different, we're in a different world. Our industry is much, much bigger than it. Yeah. Um, I, I was so lucky to, to fall into that. Absolutely. And like people tolerated me pestering them with questions and little things. And, you know, uh, the information was just starting to be available. Like the internet was around, I could look at stuff, but like back then you could, I wrote a physical letter to Intel. And I was like, hey, I want to build an operating system. And they send you three giant books, all the x86 instructions, how to build a bootloader, basically, and the third one that I can't remember now. And like, that's cool that as was hell. just heaven. Yeah, 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 that's cool as hell. I dive, you know, I've spoken to guys from that old New York City scene who dumpster dived, like for real, real, not yeah. like, like movie stuff, like dumpster dived outside AT, AT&T buildings just for like uh, manuals and reference books uh, that really help them go write stuff and tinker with, with fun yeah. stuff. So you mentioned luck and in your case, being in Seattle also puts you in the Microsoft kind of world. Yeah. We, what are we talking? 1990s, early 2000s? Probably early 2000s. I, I had to look at my own LinkedIn to try and triangulate <laughs> this to understand, but yeah, I, I bounced around startup and worked at Boeing for six months, totally hated it. And um, then 
pretty quickly got vacuumed up into the whole Microsoft security industrial complex of like, hey, let's get some consultants and have them two people, two weeks, well, pen test. But how did you get into the whole consulting world? Oh, um, I could talk about and that. When I say consulting world for the audience, this is hacker for hire on the road in a yeah. shitty hotel room uh, doing a, a two week point in time pen test because that's what security assessments look like at the time, right? It was these yeah. one and a half weeks terribly scoped pen test. In the middle of nowhere, Alabama, here's a zip file source code. Get, give us security. You How gotta, did you land in that world? Um, I've never told the story actually. So yeah, I uh, I got fired from Boeing, um, rightly so. Um, <laughs> after six months. After six months. Well, I was a contractor. They didn't renew my contract. So a soft firing maybe, but it was totally the right move. At that point, I was obsessed with writing open source software. And um, I, I was not, I was not a good employee. So like, that was all correct. It's still kind of sad, traumatic thing, but I remember walking out of this mega building at Boeing into the sun, and I called up my friend Frank Height, who I knew from 2600, who runs Leviathan Security now. And I'm like, hey, do you want to do security stuff together? He's like, yeah, we could use you over here at Microsoft. And he gave me an interview right there on the phone, which um, I hope he hears. So this. he was at Microsoft at the time. Yeah, he was a consultant um, for Microsoft doing stuff for what was the ACE team then, which was sort of bits and bytes and a little bit more web security stuff. Um, and anyway, he's he's like, yeah, what's the difference between a B string and a C string? And I was like, well, one's null terminated and one I think has the length at the beginning in the data structure, which is something, by the way, he had told me before. So I just had this factoid in my head. And he's like, okay, you're hired. Come on. Like the next day I just drove over to Redmond really? and like started on the thing. Yeah. And um, we kicked around there for, I don't know, six months or a year. And then started our own consulting company with Leviathan. As Microsoft employees? Like you were on no, we as were Microsoft employees or was vendors. this on a contract thing? Yeah, we were contract vendors. I think it was I Orange Badge. And this became Leviathan. Yeah, a couple of us did it for six months, nine months, 12 months, maybe. My sense of time is very poor here. And then we're like, oh, we should, you know, it's not hard to start a consulting company. We should just do this and um, drive our own business and stuff. And once again, incredibly lucky. We were able to lure some cool people like I think Matt Miller, maybe we convinced him to move from Kansas City and um, started Leviathan. Yeah, when I when I got on, when I first got wind of Leviathan, I think it was Shama Rose was there. Um, yeah. Uh, and you guys had been, you guys had been mentioned, John Lambert and I had a conversation. I was working as a journalist at the time about the Vista pen test, the infamous Vista pen test. Yeah. And Leviathan's name came up there and it became kind of controversial in my world. I was pretty pissed about it because it felt like Microsoft, at least the security research community, put you guys all on the NDAs. And now all of a sudden we don't have any resources to write about Microsoft security problems at a time when we actually mm. needed it. And it was kind of like a, a shitty marketing move for Microsoft to... For, I mean, this is an outside perspective years and years later, yeah. but from your, your standpoint, when, when, when Leviathan comes along, this, this, there's a, there's a burgeoning kind of penetration testing industry. Matasano was there. You guys were there. IOActive was, was, was kind of yep. popping up at the time. We just, we just lost Dan Kaminsky and, and a lot of the obits there mentioned that period of time around the Vista pen test. And you talk a little bit about what security looked like then help people understand what what a pre-Vista XP world look like yeah, and and how your own kind of uh, security thinking around SDL and, 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 and how that kind of laid the groundwork for how you're building security programs today. I know it's a long-winded random question, but it's... That's, it's a, that's a take great me back question. There. Oh, I, I took so much away from that at the personal level and sort of strategic, I guess. Um, so to go back in time a bit, software... In those in those days, I can't believe I'm saying in those days, but broadly, <laughs> like it went in a box and then it went out the door. So you had it was agile was around, like we did it uh, before extreme programming and these things. I remember doing pair programming, but like probably the dominant thing, and I'm in no way the expert on this at Microsoft was a little more waterfally. Hey, we got to hit the ship date, and hey, we have a bunch of QA people, and hey, let's do some other stuff. So SDLC seemed to be pretty well established after Bill Gates's big memo, like, hey, security matters. We're going to put a billion dollars mm -hmm. into security. And I was, again, I hugely benefited from that. And all of us did. So software went in a box. There was there were gates and you did different, you took different actions at different gates to progress to the next gate, if I was to oversimplify it. And so I was lucky enough to be right. 
this little kid in this room with a bunch of genius people like Kaminsky and Ilya and all these people who were looking largely at the services and the interconnection of those services in Vista before it shipped. So I specifically remember writing a fuzzer for the mail slot protocol, which I had never heard about before or since. And, you know, we found a bug and it was so cool. And physically we were in a couple of different rooms, uh, Didi and I and Blake, a few other people were off in a little room and there was this like really cool inner room where there were like most of the ISEC guys and Kaminsky and stuff. And then the people that worked at Microsoft, they were finding cool stuff. And uh, I mean, to add a bit of color, the most notorious thing I remember from that summer, besides just being in a windowless room writing fuzzers for four months, was getting completely crushed at Street Fighter 2 by Kaminsky, like literally one-handed over and over again without mercy, <laughs> him laughing the whole time. But it it was, once again, a totally magical summer where you just passively learn so much about the big pieces and down in the details of there's a patterns I look for. These are bugs. This is how these things might mess up. And there might be security bugs that shake out where this abstraction meets this other one and they don't quite fit. Right. And you mentioned right, right, like writing fuzzers, like a lot of people, you know, hacking and pen testing and security assessments get this kind of sexy imagery. A lot of the times you're just neck deep writing a fuzzer to try to figure out how do I crash this thing and get some sort of, uh, uh, get a result that can point me in some sort of exploitable place, right? And that again comes back to your earlier point about shifting all the discovery of bugs all the way left so you can actually discover it before it becomes an outcome that is an L. There's so many places we can go with this, but I want to linger here on on, on the Vista world. Sure. Uh, because I feel like I feel like there was a transition point for security. We had come out of the XP days. Service Pack 2 had enabled the firewall by default, Yeah, which was a big significant Huge. thing. And it had also standardized and I think introduced and I think it was the first time it had introduced and standardized automatic updating turned on. Yes. Those were two which enormous was also things. another game changer, right? So those were those are XP service pack two things. Vista came along and tried this UAC as a security boundary alerting crap that actually it was kind of like the the, the downfall of the operating system. Yeah. But there was a there was like a there was a security educating piece that happened there around UAC and around segmenting admin from a regular user. Do you believe like that was like a transformational turning point around our concept of understanding operating system security like I do? I think I would broadly agree with that. Again, I, I want to super caveat that I am in no way an expert. This is just one guy's... I don't know anything but... about what I'm talking about either. Like half of this stuff is like... <laughs> That's I'm making not up. true. That, but it was absolutely an important point in time because I think after that moment, you see these new string of companies like uh, Facebook or whatever be, be web apps. Like I remember walking into that time when we started Microsoft, we had the grungy security work. Go look at these web apps. There's nothing cool in web apps. Find SQL injection, find XSS. It's all over, whatever. When you grow up, you can come find like cool C bugs with us and off by ones right. and these sort of things. And so like, I think the industry definitely moved more towards ship fast, faster release cycles. Software doesn't go in boxes. Agile is kind of the default now. And so I think the ground moved from underneath us as security people um, in that direction. And you see, like, there's no more QA people anymore, right? Like, people write unit tests. So um, the thing we worked to secure, the software, was built in a fundamentally different sort of factory or assembly line before and after that point. Um, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, and, and and right around that time was when internet connectivity and everything and broadband rollout had kind of shifted us to this web app world where everything was uh, delivered over. Yeah. You have written extensively about product security and how you view product security. And there's a line in one of your articles that always bugged me. I want to bring it up here. Yeah. You say everything in product security revolves around bugs. And bugs are really a proxy for insecurity and perhaps more accurately, an observed example of insecurity. It seems very narrow where you're putting a lot of emphasis on chasing bugs when you started this conversation by saying the, the perfect security doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so help me understand how you segment this notion that everything revolves around bugs and where does that fit in your, in your spend budget allocation around tools and people? And defend that statement yeah. for a little because I think that's a great understand what you mean there. Um, I'm, I'm wrong. Like, uh, I, I've changed my mind, so it's easy. No, 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 I apologize, because this is all. <laughs> no. Let me tell people, wait, hold on a second. What date is this? This might have been from 17? Yeah, probably a Yeah, few January years. 2017. So you're allowed to change yeah, your mind. I'm go ahead. I, I, hopefully, yeah, I, I change my mind all the time, man, when new information comes in. And new information has come in. So 
I mean, my background was very focused on that, right? Mm-hmm, my, mm-hmm. my universe was both. No, I want us to focus on it too, because I think it's important. I think it gets largely overlooked. And I want to dig into bug yeah. bounty programs as well with you, but help okay. me understand what you meant here and, and may, maybe explain yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me explain what I meant at the time and then maybe how my views have changed since then. So at the time, what I was trying to say, and that's a little bit of a provocative statement, so it's a little bit more than I even felt at the time, but it's bugs are interesting because they're pointers to these larger things. Like they're little hints that, hey, maybe this design wasn't thought through or in, in, they're, they're little hints to larger, th- little I'm smiling because I remember my Shubs podcast. Just recently, I spoke to Shubs about this is how I know I'll break in because I spotted a little sign here that gave me a context yeah. for what I know bigger, larger problems are. But go ahead. That's exactly it. And that's that's an even more elegant way to say what I was trying to say there. Like they, they're instances of insecurity. So bugs themselves are cool and interesting and worthy to find, right? But they're point in time and you know that you're getting one bug out of the 30 that maybe lurk in your code base, right? So maybe it's like fishing, right? Like there's a lot of fish underground or underwater and you use different techniques. A fishing pole is like a security review and a fuzzer is maybe right. some dynamite or whatever. I think David Tell used this analogy forever ago. And um, so you get one or two fish from a school of fish, right? But you know there's more down there. And so you don't win the game. You're not done when you found 10 bugs, 100 bugs. You, you win when you've prevented that entire family of bugs from being possible anymore. And so that is my narrow, very prodsec centric view from a few years ago. And I still think that statement is true, but I think there's a much richer world of ways we can influence the outcome of secure software much earlier, right? Like I could have a 30 minute meeting and say, hey, Instagram team, don't build your CDN this way because it's going to lead to a DDoS. That's just a conversation in words that turns into a design that means that some code with bugs in it is never written. So those bugs can never be found, right? So this is just, again, the shift left thing. And since that time when my thinking was more narrow, I recognize that you have a lot of tools in your toolbox to influence things. And really what we care about is risk and security and bugs are just sort of like a data point that help understand if something is riskier and secure or not. But when, you're, when your world is, is, is driven by finding, fixing, identifying bugs, and, and, and again, the audience knows this, it's not about finding specific bugs. It's about finding attack classes and removing attack classes so that yeah. you're not chasing bugs, you're chasing the fundamental things below that kind of create it. And a lot of that goes into how are we educating developers? How are we giving them the right runway, the right set of tools? Totally. Where, like, where does that fit in your in your allocation of resources? Yeah, that's a good a good question as well. I think um, one of the interesting things that I'll just preface this is that like not only is is security hard because we don't know where everything is and we never get to know if we found them all, but you also just have to use your intuition in a lot of resource allocation scenarios like this. So, like to, to more strictly answer your question. Um, in my current job and previous jobs where I've had a hand in defining what the strategy is, developer education is huge. It's a big deal. All the guardrails are huge, right? Like when we built the HTML rendering framework that I think became React, like we got to work on the security of that at Facebook or Instagram or whatever it was. And so you want to guide people towards doing the right secure thing by default. This is super obvious. So that isn't just at the code level. It's also at the education level. Like success is them doing the right thing almost automatically. And often that is because you make the secure solution the most alluring one. It's less code. It's friendlier. It's ergonomic. It fits their use case. It was already taught to them in their onboarding class. Like You just want to build these sort of pits of success where you can accidentally fall into doing the right thing. And so to give you a strict allocation of resources, I think there's 120 people on the ProdSec team and it's probably about one to two people's full-time job to do the sort of security education. And that itself takes a few forms, videos, classes, whatever. It's it's also things like um, A-B testing the wording we use on a static analysis rule that says don't write this to make it like more or less likely for someone to do the right thing. It's having a top 10 list. And Facebook doesn't have like OWASP top 10 stuff anymore. We have our own weird classes of like privacy interactions where it's like, hey, you might accidentally write right, this because, bug and, and, and it's because it's unique. Yeah, exactly. And that's unique to you. You've created your own top 10 because of like your, your like the, the, 
privacy complications and privacy implications some of your yeah like the top 10 security bugs that we still write because you can't solve everything with tools and training and whatever else you can just tick up the probability that the right thing happens so people are always going to to make mistakes and that's normal um so yeah like one of our things is the facebook top 10 whether you're writing mobile www code or native like these are the things that uh are still possible to screw up and the ones that we statistically see the most likely. So you have your own internal Bible, your own internal kind of. Yeah, yeah. Does that 120 people apply to Instagram and all the other things? Or is Facebook one of those like big, massive organizations where things are siloed and you have security teams everywhere? How do you manage that like Mm. complexity? Yeah, so just the product security team is about 120 people. Larger security team is something like 400. And I've, the big upside of being a consultant, right? we get to go to all these places, see how they're done in different ways. So I'll first say that there's no right or wrong to work design, but like right. y- you contrast. It's impossible to get. There is no there is no playbook. Yeah, there's no perfect either. It's just a pile of trade-offs. And so, um, yeah, like the Microsoft model of like, hey, IE has a security team and MSN had a security team and da-da-da-da-da, Windows has a security team. Um, we went in the opposite direction at Facebook and we shaped it more towards most people are in just this mega security team and it is responsible for the entire portfolio of stuff. Oculus goggles, the Facebook website. So if someone at if, if if a manager if a manager at Instagram says, Oh my gosh, I saw something on CNBC and we need to roll a security team to address this thing, you have a structure set up where you can send a guy in and say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, exactly. We have we have kind of a playbook for this already. We got you covered. Yeah. Like we try and think about all the surfaces and we're not perfect, right? But that is a very common thing in big companies, right? Some uh, muckety muck says, ah, security, I need a security team. And then often I'll go in and be like, whoa, 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 like, let us help you, you know, we'll embed with you or we'll do the work for you or hand in hand or whatever, you know, you don't need to do this. Uh, and, and you guys are the haves, cybersecurity teams in Silicon Valley, I mean, everywhere in the world, they're the haves and the have nots where resources are, I mean, for Facebook, I can imagine, I don't imagine Zuck saying no to any of you guys asks uh, around security and privacy spend, right? And there isn't there isn't a tool or a or or, or person you've identified that you want to hire that it's going to be very difficult for you. I imagine. Talk a little bit about the importance though of haves and have-nots and this security tax that does exist that places us all at risk. And is that something that we can even get ahead of? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I so first I I want to reiterate you're exactly right. Like working at Facebook in contrast to other places I've worked where like the security one percenters for sure. Like we have all this oh, budget. Gosh, all I this don't stuff. think you guys would survive it outside of a lot of places. <laughs> it's we have to make different trade-offs for sure. So we are very lucky. Um, and it's, and, and it's totally true. Yes. Spoil. I'll even go spoiled. We're both parents, <laughs> right? We're probably spoiled <laughs> in a you. lot of respects. <laughs> um, but it, we also have a different class of problems and like, I, I don't know, it's interesting. There's some subtlety there, but, um, I think the difference between, so I, I left Facebook for a few years. So I worked, I kicked around a couple of different places after we cons- consulted for Microsoft at Salesforce and other things. And, um, one of the most yeah, interesting experiences. Yeah, I mentioned experiences. taking an L. You were an Uber security team. <laughs> yeah. So let's, you were let's also talk on the about Uber that. security team. <laughs> yeah. That's where I yes, was going please. with it. Yeah. What can you talk about that experience? Um, so there's some lawsuit stuff going around there. So I think what I can talk about there is. No, that's why I say let's not. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to put you on the spot and uh, and talk about any of the, lawsuit the stuff, but it, it ties into where I want to segue the conversation next on bug bounty programs and some of the hiccups and some of the problems there. But perfect. Tell me what tell me about your about, about the experience at Uber and what that was like. Yeah, it's it's a really nice contrast. So, a couple of years there at Facebook, I've been at Facebook for eleven years, uh, and at, at some point I left for two years to go help start the Uber security team. And when I joined, it was. I don't know, maybe eight people. We grew it to about 100 over the course of a year or two. Um, the interesting thing there is you get a lot of things for free at a Facebook or a Google or a Square or whatever. And they help you immensely with security and they aren't necessarily security things. So a good example of this is inventory of third-party code, inventory of laptops, all these- Vendor own- relationship management things. Vendor relationship oh. management, ownership of code, Ryan. Like this was a huge thing at Uber. Like I can find- I walked in and there were bugs and we found bugs. And then I assigned it to the person. I looked up, get blame. Hey, could you fix this? It looks like this. I'll help you if you need any help. No response for, and it was, I think, SQL injection. It was something that was a pretty big deal. Externally available SQL injection in some driver website. And I was like, 
hey man, really need you to fix this like next day. And he didn't get back to me, escalate to his manager, go talk to him, just walk over to his desk. And he's like, oh yeah, I, I wrote that. I don't own that. I'm like, oh, okay. So like, I just wrote the fix and like landed the code, but then that was a pattern. And so- Right. So now you're, you're, you're trying to set up things from scratch yeah. and recreate things from scratch when it's really, and it's not, it's not a failing necessarily. It's just how it was built and how ownership of code moved around, right? And these are attributes. Companies are like people, right? They got preferences and they have goals and things. And so Facebook is a company, Google is a company. Yeah, they're the one percenters. So they care about quality and they care about security. And it's like a top level. It matters, right? Um, at Uber, they cared about quality and they cared about security, but there were 20 other things that mattered a lot too. So I think we ended up having a chat with like the head of engineering and then the CEO after we found enough of these bugs where we're like, hey, nobody's fixing these bugs. No one seems to care about security. Like Structurally, we have a problem. Yes. It we can find all the bugs we want and we can fix them ourselves if you want. It's not super efficient. Like we need you to like get up in front of everyone and say, Hey, this is important. And we need to allocate time on the roadmap and these sort of big things where we were swimming upstream. Yeah, that, that can be but a that hard must thing. Have been a useful exercise for you. And I mean, from a career perspective, trying to figure out like, you know, especially these non-security risk oriented things that yeah. introduce massive risk to your own program. Oh, absolutely. It, it, that was a huge awakening moment for me because you realize you're just this fish in this in this giant pond and like everybody has their own priorities and you need to have empathy and think through what they care about and frame it that way. And if that doesn't work, you need to like see if the company will change in that direction. And, and they ultimately did. And that was something that was fixable? Yeah, SQL injection was That was, was something fixable. that was fixable and that was addressed? Yeah, yeah. It, it got better. It, it took us... I mean, you have to go make your case, right? We're like, hey, we found all these bugs. No one's fixing them. No one seems to care. By the way, the meta problem here is that no one owns 90% of our code base. So like that matters for plenty of other reasons because no one's going to ever deprecate code. We're just adding junk on top of junk and um, yeah. let's fix this. So we started a sort of better engineering thing there to try and clean that up. And when you left there, you felt it was left in better hands and in a, in a, in a better way because of like a lot of these investments in, in addressing this? Yeah, absolutely. It, um, you know, it was very much a startup culture and like move fast, break stuff, like get it done and then we'll get it good. Cause like I'm a security guy, right? We're security guys. We care about security. Security is not always the most important thing. Like if the business is going to die, it doesn't matter how secure it is. So yeah. Uber was like, had crazy scaling stuff where it's like, holy shit, there's a million drivers and a million writers and we need to match them in a 30 second window. And we wrote our stuff in Node.js for some reason. So it's falling over. Like we need to re-architect this. And like, yes, you do. And do these secure things as you do it, please. I'm not going to find any more bugs in this old code that's going to go away. Right. And and a big part of that was your use of bug bounty programs. And I don't want to get into the yeah. controversy that ended up happening with Uber. Like we'll, we'll skip over all of that. But you sure. became a fan of bug bounty programs to drive this shift left, this Absolutely. shift left mentality. And le I, I don't want to get the audience too lost in what we mean by shift left. Again, I'll go back to your writing because I think, and I, and I want to thank you for like writing a lot of sharing your work in this very simplistic, concise way for normal people like me to understand. And <laughs> well, what I you. really loved is your buckets, the way you bucket uh, a, a security vulnerability or a bug into these six buckets, and, and I'll go through them. You yeah. see, the best outcome is a bug that never makes it into code. So that's the prevented piece. That's what we're talking about with tools, fuzzers, static analysis testing tools, a lot of that. That's That has to be an, a, a, a significant part of your investment if shift left is the priority, right? Absolutely. It's You can argue either way and it's fine of if tools are in that bucket, but my canonical example there is generally like an abstraction over SQL so you can't write SQL injection or right. HTML templating with auto escape on by default so you can't write XSS or these things. But isn't that, isn't that the job of the tool though? Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't our yeah. tools like stop the developer from making those mistakes? Totally. Yeah. It, and all these things are like woven together for sure. So mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, so it, it, that's, that's absolutely the best outcome is if you can prevent the thing in the first place. So you have, let me, let me go through the buckets because I yeah. think I got lost there. So the prevented is the best outcome because it never makes it into code. We talked about some of the tools. Then there's another bucket you say found automatically, which is founded by static analysis or other tools. And this is relatively yeah. cheap. This is, uh, you know, a lot of the tools you build, time cost, it's, it's relatively cheap. Time cheap. Yep. Time cheap. And then found manually, also very good, but there's a large set of bugs that can be found manually. 
Yeah. This this is where we become uh, heavily reliant on people and skilled people at a time when all you guys are poaching from each other and it's impossible to really build a, a possible team. So there's that fun manually piece. And I want, if you don't mind, we can get into them individually. Yeah. Then there's the found externally piece. This is where you lump in bug bounty programs and crowdsourcing it to other parties. So you 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 have bug bounties almost in the middle, even further right of boom. Yeah. I and I think about this in terms of risk. Like, it is better for us to find it internally ourselves or with external consultants than it is for a bug bounty researcher to find it. Because the the carrot we dangle for the bug bounty researcher is one of reputation and just money. Hey, don't exploit this thing. Tell us because we're the best recipient for it. We'll pay you the most and we'll help you out the most. But I mean. I would always rather have increased control over that bug, right? To know about right. the WhatsApp update ourselves before Zerodium or whatever tries to sell it to us. Right. And then there are two other buckets too, which is which are the worst. The, the never found. Yeah. Which is not as bad. If it's never found by anyone at all whatsoever, then it's fine. If it's found by if it's when you say never found, it's never found by you. Or never found by you and your security investments. There's yeah. a never found there where it's found and never we don't know what happens to it. It's just the big question mark. It's the mystery. You say most flavor. bugs end up there though. And you I'm think totally most... just guessing. I, okay. Yeah. I, so you really think that even with all your investments and all your work over the years, ad bug bounty, tooling, the best people, structure, you've built an ideal security program. You still think that at the end of the day, like it's just a natural thing that most bugs will probably end up not being found. Maybe That's call a me very a pessimistic look at Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, all I can say honestly is that I don't know. Um, it's a good approach to have, though. I mean, it's it's kind of like a, a there's always there's always a grunt work to be done. Approach. I think that's what's so cool about our field, right? Like you know, Rainforest Puppy found SQL injection 15 years ago or whatever. We weren't even looking for it or thinking about it before then. There will be before you and I die. There are going to be many more classes of security vulnerabilities found that are just lurking today that we don't think about. That's my guess. And then the last bucket, obviously, is the worst bucket, which is exploited. The worst yeah. that are that and and exploited when you find out it's exploited in the wild, right? Yeah, yeah. That's and you've had a few worst. of those in your career as well. Yeah, we we have definitely had a few of those in my career, and you learn an incredible what amount. What good from comes it. out of something like that? Talk a little oh. bit about like learning an incredible amount. Tons like how of good shitty learning. it is to be on the receiving end of like uh, uh, taking that kind of an L where a bug is exploited in the wild and you find out by zero day, especially if it's like an advanced actor, uh, yeah. an advanced threat actor. You know what we're talking about. What are, what do those days feel like? And where do you where do you, when and where do you find the Okay, we've learned so much about this. Look at yeah. how much we've been able to do. Oh boy, there's a lot to that question. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll try and hinge it on a specific example. So um, earlier, when I was at Facebook early on, maybe this was like 2010, 2011 or something, um, someone found and exploited a security bug in Facebook um, in this thing called the puzzle server. And um, they got RCE. First of all, why do you have something named puzzle server? But go ahead. <laughs> oh, it was this, it was a recruiting game, actually. It was, really? um, yeah. So Facebook wanted to draw out the best software engineers in the world in 2010. And so they said, hey, write you know, a solution to the eight queens problem in C++, upload it to us, we'll execute it. And if you're, you know, so you can already see where this is like, it's just RCE as a service, <laughs> right? This isn't great. Um, and uh, then, you know, we'll, we want to hire you if, if it succeeds or it's performant. Or and it's this got popped. Yeah, it got popped. And um, we had a giant response internally uh, to clean it up. And the first two weeks are just a complete blur. I don't, I just remember snatches of it. It's like staying up all night, just crazy caffeine. Because of how shitty it was? Because like we wanted to do everything we could, we were in investigation mode. So like, right, I right. think the biggest thing I realized is like, you can read a lot of stories about getting hacked, but in the moment it's, you're always, you start with Is one it a clue. helpless feeling? I didn't feel helpless personally. I felt like, okay, what's the next clue? What's the next clue? What's the next clue? Cause you don't, I mean, this kid didn't announce himself. He didn't email us and say, Hey, I hacked you. Guess what? It, it started as much good science and many good discoveries do with a, oh, that's weird. It, it started off with our Voln scanner, actually, or running Qualys for some compliance reason. And it was like, hey, this thing is in the wrong DMZ. What's going on here? And it was totally routine. And then you dig in and you're like, oh, that's weird. A few people gathered around a guy's desk. Oh, that's weird. Could we look at these logs? Oh, the logs are missing? 
Oh, that, that's, that's weird. weirder. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. What host had access to this thing? Oh, this host moved? Oh, let's look at the logs for that. Oh, someone logged in from an IP we've never seen. That's weird. Oh, what's this stuff? That's weird. So there's this intellectual challenge of constantly changing, chasing the IR kind of uh, yeah. needle, right? Yeah, and it, it is totally cool. So the first two weeks was just figuring out the state of affairs of what happened. But um, after that, it drove, I mean, the entire company pivoted for like a summer, basically, to um, there were a couple of known security bugs internally, but they were just internal facing in internal tools and stuff. And we're like, well, this person might have seen our source code. We have to fix this stuff right now. Um, you know, there are passwords stored in source code and it's like, oh, we got to fix, we got to rotate these instantly and we need to change it all right now. Sounds like half of Silicon Valley is doing right now with code carve and the supply chain thing. Exactly. Right? right. Yeah. At least in that case, you're in it together. This was just like, you put your head together in a room and you try and figure it out and you pull the thread, but it was an incredible and very meaningful experience for me because I had been a theoretical security person for the 10, 15 years ahead of that, where I'm like, yeah, I find bugs that are exploited. Like I hacked a couple of things as a kid, but being on the receiving end is just- Understanding impact and understanding consequences. And more importantly, yeah. like um, a lot of a lot of the times when people take an L, they don't realize how much of a kick in the ass it gives you to go fix shit that you've been kind of putting along. And you know, that old sandwich sitting on the desk, it's yeah. like, finally, let me eat this sandwich. And and it kind of gets you off Lights that ADHD of thing where you kind of leave things sitting around, right? I mean, a lot of taking an L, is, it, it, it really helps drive that. Absolutely agree. Like there is just extreme clarity. Like those first two weeks, what are we doing? What's every security person? What's every software engineer at this entire company doing? We're figuring out what the fuck happened quickly. Exactly. What did he touch? How'd he get? Did he take anything? Where'd he go? Where's he from? Call law enforcement. Who is this person? Where is he coming from? Did he leave any tracks? Oh, he wrote his own custom shell that self-deletes his bash history. Okay. Is there anything in the hard drive that we can extract from the, like everything? It just explodes into all these w- different work streams that are like progressing at different speeds. And it it was completely exhilarating and I, I learned so much and I loved it. But looking back on it, right, the, 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 the big lesson, I mean, when you when you look at where the program is now versus where it was then, you can actually see that as being like a, an impetus, like a checkmark impetus for how we've, how we've modernized and changed things significantly, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that what I'm trying to get. I'm trying point. to get folks to understand that when you get popped or when you're dealing with all these ransomware epidemic, because that's what that's what your peers are facing now. A lot of your peers and CISOs are dealing with just ransomware infections everywhere. And it's easy to pull your hair out and think it's the end of the world. Yeah. But this is you have to use this as the impetus to go find budget, find resources to build your network more resilient and have backups in place almost automatically and make sure your cloud backups are not, you can't write the cloud backups. Like those are the sum of the day. That's why you want to have an L. If, if, the, if that, yeah. you never want to have an L, but if you're gonna, if you, if you're in security, you will have an L. We've established that. Yep. How are you turning your L's into fuel? I don't know. Yeah. You, you, it lights a fire for sure. Like it, um, it, it's so powerful in that way. Cause it's not theoretical anymore. It's like, oh, this felt bad. I was outsmarted by some kid who noticed a thing that I missed that did whatever I screwed up. I'm letting people down. Like I need to go after this. For me, it, it was a very, like, I don't, I wouldn't say very emotional, but like there was some emotional component to it where it's like, I don't want this guy to win. I want to win like this. Let's right, go right. do this. And so you turn those L's into, into lessons and into motivation for sure. And everybody has to face this, right? Like the whole reason I got swept up into the Vista pen test, however long ago is because what were those worms slammer or something else? I forget. Sasser, slammer, blaster, yeah. all those guys. And yeah. Bill Gates is like, Hey, this sucks. This is real. Like I'm sure right. people have been that's telling when the, But that's when the trustworthy computing memo turned into budget and turned into Brown when Matthews giving you guys uh, all exactly. those contracts, right? Like, exactly. Uh, you say we aim to shift as many bugs as possible left and bug bounty. You, 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 you kind of almost call that found externally because it's, it's external non, yeah. non Facebook eyeballs, but it's also very, very important eyeballs like what what percent can you talk about what percentage of code is actually found by these in in this prevented found automatically found manually has shift left been something that you can measure you can measurably say yes my investment in shift left and all these freaking tools have now shown that i have done help me understand how do you measure it thankfully yes um let me go back and and correct like younger 
version of Colin for a moment in that we're talking about <laughs> Sorry, bugs. Sorry, I'm reading but... from your old stuff, but this is the stuff that helps me understand it, honestly. No, you're totally right. Just just pretend everywhere I wrote bugs, I said risks, because it's really okay. broader than that, right? It, you know, bugs excludes the firewalls misconfigured or whatever. All these other things matter a ton too. That was just my lens at the time. So yes, uh, here's how it's looked for the last couple, handful of years at um, Facebook. So we have a security review program. About a third of the bugs we find every year come from that. This is manual review internally, sprinkled some consultants just like me of however many years ago, looking at- When you say consultants, sprinkled some consultants, third-party consultants like say IOActive or NCC, Bishop Fox, any of these kind of yep, like exactly. specialized guys who come in and bring professional eyeballs on certain things. Exactly of. right. Yeah. And, and that's it, the traditional scoped pen test way, or are you looking at differently and and-, and and, and I know this is another joining conversation, but it, like that part of it in, and that percentage of bugs found there, are you doing it? Is yeah, yeah, it's it's those things. It's probably like 95% just security engineers on the team, 5% external consultants for something okay. we don't know about or like we want a second set of eyeballs. But yeah, it takes that form. We're greedy and we'll do staff augs if anyone will take it, but consultants don't want to be in the same seat for six months. So that's, we find a middle ground there. A balance, right? Yeah. And so about a third came from that, a third came from bug bounty, and about a third of the bugs we find every year came from tools, broadly tools, the four static analysis things we wrote and fuzzing and some other stuff. Um, and so that ratio has shifted over time to now where about half of the bugs we find come from our homegrown tools and less on security reviews and less on bug bounty. So that is measurable shift left. And then we wait but that's an assumption. I mean, we're making a lot of assumptions on quality of bug bounty. Yes, okay. it's, and it's dangerous because the right way to do this is to weight it based on severity of the bug, which is, of course, an argument you could have in different directions. So, right, it's always going to be subjective. Like, and, I mean, this measurement is never going to be. It's never going to give you the. It's not. It, it's not foolproof. Obviously, there are yeah, caveats, and it's subjective it's, in certain areas. Yeah, exactly right. And so the worst part, and one of my greatest annoyances that I ask every security person I talk to is, hey, how do you measure what you've prevented? It's hard to quantify, right? You can't measure the bugs that didn't get written. So we do that more with milestones, like, hey, there's this class of bugs, and we measured that we were getting 40 of them a year for four years. And now we measure that everybody uses the secure by default library foo, and we, do, we have zero of them. And that's held true for two years. So pat on the back, we feel good, that one's done. So that's kind of how we measure um, prevented. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a realistic way of looking at it as well. And when you yeah. say 50% of it have shifted towards tools, these are homegrown tools uh, that you guys conceptualize, written, built, and use internally. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's kind of three big buckets of these tools. Our, our biggest and sort of longest running one is static analysis. So actually to tie this back to the L, Facebook got hacked. The person um, we, we think took the source code, we eventually found that person, by the way, and they were in jail for a while. But they, at that point, we were like, holy cow, we know we have a bunch of bugs internally in our source code and it's written in PHP and PHP is kind of a janky language. Let's, let's try and grep our way to find all the bugs or you know what something that scales, right? Because we have the whole company waiting to help us here. Let's give them ways that they can help. And so that pretty quickly turned into a thing that a, a couple of amazing engineers hacked together that ended up being sort of a rough static analysis tool for PHP that could find web app bugs. And then it's just grown and grown and grown since then. And, and that's become a big, a big part of your arsenal. This yeah, is it the Python tool you're talking about? That's for Python. This one is called Zonkalon now, written by an Italian guy who loves like uh, road bikes. Zonkalon, I guess, is some big Italian <laughs> mountain and a famous. Um, so anyway, it, it finds a bunch of our bugs and it, it runs on every diff, thousands of diffs or pull requests rather every day. It runs automatically. It's, it's performant and it it's a big deal. Like it's the backbone of our thing. And so if you want to talk about all these different, you know, layers of security feeding into each other, one of the biggest we do is we're always going to do security reviews because they help us find things, all the tools and all the other stuff can't find. And then we're going to take the outcome of those security reviews is not only security bugs, which are great. We go fix, but they're point in time. They're patterns that we go into our documentation. They're patterns that turn into static analysis rules. They're roadmap items that go and make the secure by default library. So these things all feed back into each other. Right. One of the things I hear from your peers around this notion of uh, creating your own homegrown tools become very important. And a lot of the data you're sharing is, uh, I'm hearing it from a lot of the other folks as well, which is uh, we are shifting a lot of the things left by creating these fuzzers and testers and so on. Yeah. However, there's a, there's a big part of retention 
of senior engineers to manage those tools. And now we get into the people versus tools issue. So you have a senior engineer who is motivated and energized to create this amazing tool. Yeah. Then he gets bored and he doesn't want to freaking maintain it. It kind of sits there. Now you have to find junior people to teach them and maintain that code. And that presents a people problem that's become very, very difficult for security programs to manage. Is yeah. that a fair assessment? Are you running into some of that hiccups around how do I maintain these tools when my senior engineers move on to the next sexiest thing? Yeah, it's it's a problem um, that we face for sure. I think whenever you get a group of people together as a manager, my job is to help make them be successful, help them do useful work, help them do stuff that they care about. And so motivation is huge in that. So I think I think I accept the premise of the question for sure that it's a thing and it happens to everyone. For us, we've sort of solved it by breaking the security team into two big chunks. Security engineer, hackery types, breakers, for lack of a better word, that want to use the tools, improve the tools, find bugs, run bug bounty, do security reviews. This is more of my background. And then we have a bunch of software engineers who are true software engineers that have, you know, some amount of interest in security or they're software engineers that just like building infrastructure stuff. Like you could imagine them building an IDE in another company right. or so. So um, those folks really like to stick with their projects because I mean, I'm oversimplifying enormously here. I find that they tend to stick with their projects for longer than usual because it's sort of their baby. Like um, when you build this thing, you get this wonderful fast feedback loop of your customers are not some angry person in the middle of nowhere. It's like the coworker sitting next to me who uses it on every build every day and will come right, complain right. to you and give you props if you do awesome. So those sort of things along with organizational incentives of like, hey, this is really important, you know, please work on this thing are our best answers. How do you decide when, is there an open source strategy to this? How do you decide when some of these tools are, you know, uh, could be useful as an open source strategy? Like what, what goes into thinking like, what can we release as open source? And is there a risk at all about putting out a tool open source and having others? Yeah. Yeah. Facebook has, has I think, screwed this up a number of times in the past that I haven't been super close to. But we, on the security team, we generally try and open source everything by default when we can responsibly open source it. So fire and forget. What does that mean? This is, I'm just making this up kind of on the fly, but I would characterize it as like, hey, just pressing a button to open source something and throwing it out there in the world is can be useful, but it's much more useful to say, hey, this is a thing where we're going to have an internal team that invests and listens to the bug reports and like we're going to maintain this thing because it's valuable to us and to the community. And so like responsibly open sourcing stuff is kind of the bar that we hold ourselves to. We don't want to fire and forget it, right, throw it right. over the wall. But yeah. Um, and to your second question, I mean, more eyes, the better. Like if people find bugs in our code, that's awesome. If people use it to find bugs in their code, if if they get any value out of it at all, that's a, a win. That's an outcome you support. Yeah, totally. Coming back to this people problem and, and it's a it's a big it's a big hiccup in a lot of um programs is reliance on bug bounty programs and triaging a lot of the crap that comes in. Yes. Uh, you've been involved in two pretty significant bug bounty programs. Do you know, by the way, do you know how much money you've spent on bug bounty programs in your life? Yeah. Um, At both places? Give me a number. Like we've spent a ton, right? Yeah. I I would say in payouts, probably somewhere between 10 and 15 million in payouts. Um, and Facebook regularly pays out about a million dollars a year in payouts. And then I'm not as close to the program internally anymore, but historically the rule of thumb is that you spend one to two X as much to run the program, depending on how you count it. As Right. So in addition payouts. to the payouts, there's a big, I mean, if you don't, if, if, if you're contemplating a, a bug bounty program, the first thing you should do is go listen to Katie Masuris for about six hours first before you yeah. even put a pen <laughs> on a paper, right? So can yes. you talk a little bit about like ramping up a bug bounty program from scratch and what are some, some of those hidden costs that people just have no idea what goes into it? Yeah. Yeah. So this has changed a little bit. Um, I've done this twice. I, I started the Facebook bug bounty program like a decade ago and we learned a lot of stuff and then going to Uber and starting the bug bounty program and then making a new set of mistakes. I mean, drawing from that experience, like there's a couple of really important things. First, try and get your house in order, right? Like your security, like bug bounty is the icing on the security cake. It's not the first thing you do. Um, when you have 
like a reasonable process to fix a vulnerability reliably, that would be a precondition. When you have ownership of code, when your company vaguely cares about security, like these are important check marks, preconditions, I guess. Vaguely cares is kind of like the reality for a lot of companies too. This kind of vaguely cares where it's it's a line in a press release rather than actual investments and resources, right? Yeah, real investment and resources. And then there's a bunch of tactical lessons that I would share. I think the absolute most crucial one is just to start with the smallest possible scope and define it really well. Because bug bounty is really hard. You're asking a bunch of security engineers who want to find bugs to perform a customer service job in some respects. And so their counterparties, their new coworkers are a bunch of people on the internet that can sometimes be hard to communicate with, but have the company's best interests at heart. But it's just an inherently a little bit adversarial thing. So there's a lot of potholes and easy things to screw up. But broadly, if you can come in and say, hey, I got approval to spend this pot of money on bounties. We want to do it. Here's a rough chart of what we think is important and what we know is in scope or not. It's best if it's just domain names or software, or you can crisply scope it. Um, we're going to give it a shot and please be patient with us is the general approach I would try. Because the thing that I think people don't appreciate is like, it's a one-way door. You turn on a bug bounty program, you can't really turn it off. And people are going to send you stuff at all hours right. of the day. And you don't. It's one of those nonstop investments you'll have to, yeah. Yeah, you can't roll it back, really. Uh, is Are there advantages to rolling your own versus using one of the public platforms? I think this is a thing where I've been involved in bug bounty, but I've only ever, for lack of a better word, rolled my own. At, at Uber, we used HackerOne, and um, I think we use HackerOne and BugCrowd for some triage and payments at Facebook. Like, there's a lot of infrastructure bits. Like, when we started the bug bounty yeah, program I, I mean, a lot of folks don't understand, like, the triaging issue. I mean, like... Yeah, when you, when you roll that. a bug bounty program and a lot of this stuff starts coming in, and I, I'm pretty sure you have people on your team who's doing this, and I don't want to discount the importance of what they do or, or, or have you rub them the wrong way. But in all honesty, like this is the shittiest part of the bug bounty ecosystem. Where, I, I, I know I put you on the spot here, but like that's the crappiest part of this job, which is just taking all these incoming noise and filtering and just triaging and trying to figure out what the hell is what. It's, it's unfair, job. probably, but yeah. I, I think I would agree that it is a very hard job. I've, I did it myself for years. and I, those guys more. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, they're wonderful. <laughs> we love them. And it, it is a very hard job because, you know, at Facebook, you're getting 100 e emails effectively a day from random people on the internet of various levels of ability to communicate a technical issue to you. Um, and they're all heavily incentivized to hype that it's the biggest deal in the world. And it often takes 5, 10, 15 back and forth of, did you mean this? I reproed it like this. Do you mean this? And sometimes they're really easy. And sometimes you get someone like Shubbs, who's just like gives you basically a professional pen test <laughs> report in each thing. But the majority, it's like a conversation. And so you have to draw out the right details and understand and assume good intent always. And so it's a very difficult job that we really respect at Facebook. And um, But it's, it's totally essential because we talked about the shift left thing, like bug bounty is the ultimate like feedback into the other earlier parts of the security system. Like, hey, we didn't know we were running this domain. Holy cow. Let's look at the source code and lock it down in DNS and do these. Like it gives us these things that we by definition missed by all these other layers. So it is immensely valuable. Uh, bug, bounty pro bug bounty industry has grown up and gone off into a world that where it's so automated now and guys have to be parts. I mean, my podcast with Shubs is really an eye opener for me in terms of how much of it has become automated. And how much that automation on the offensive side is now driving automation on the defensive side around automatic discovery, or like this this continuous testing of yeah. uh, internet-facing applications, right? Uh, and and we can wrap up here. What I what what I found just to wrap it all back in is a lot of you guys from your era that were the hackers who completely destroyed Windows. And then went in and helped us redefine and define what SDL would look like and what security programs would look like. What I find is a lot of the bug bounty guys who went off to look for riches are now coming back and helping us define what web app security looks like in a way where the testing is continuous and you're proactively, when, when, you, when you do continuous testing and you proactively flag and fix not just bugs, but attack classes, how far left is that, right? That's left of left, right? I mean, isn't the that best. what I'm starting to see now is like a lot of the brains from bug bounty world coming back to define security. And is that, is, can we leave 
the audience with an optimism that, yeah, we're kind of in good hands? Oh, we absolutely are. This is, it is my strong belief that like Bug Bounty has been an awesome on-ramp for the next generation of people. And like, it's such a big deal. I, I think it's a really healthy outlet for people to hack stuff today. And, you know, you're not going to get sued or like put in jail anymore, which is awesome. Right. So there's this freedom. And then the next step is this like camaraderie. I'm sure just like you and I are, we're on IRC and they're probably on IRC or Slack, whatever it is. Yeah, like, they're in the Slack channels doing yeah. Thing, yeah. And they encourage each other, which is awesome. And they're finding new stuff. And like, I have high hopes for the next generation. Like we are in good hands. Can you come back? Because I, we still got to, we still have to talk about like, if, if things are so much better, yeah. And we've gotten to a place where security programs are more modernized. We have all this investment. Why is every company royally owned by ransomware? Why is every headline about some big hack? Why are our supply chains so fragile? Like, yeah, we have a, like our industry, it just feels like there, there are two worlds and trying to document these two worlds, like trying to write about all these fires burning over here. Yeah. While talking to folks like you who are saying, yeah, my security program is solid. I'm moving things left. I'm spending all this money here. We're fixing things there. It's like, which world are we really living in? So I would love to have that Can you that come discussion. back and help me, help, help the audience understand what on earth is going on? I appreciate it. Absolutely. I would love to do that. I, I can add one thought to that, which is I think we're getting better, but the pie is also expanding at the same time. So things are actually getting better and worse. There are more new things coming in. There are more mature things that are getting even better, and that's cool, but it's lumpy. It is not evenly distributed among companies or software or anything. Attack surfaces are expanding faster than we can even react to. That's a better way to put it, yeah. Ah, that's a good place to end it. Colin, thank you very much for one hour and five minutes of fantastic, fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. Likewise, man. It's nice to talk to you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs>